You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. There seems to be a perception among Christians that Lutherans are somehow against holy living or against good works. And yet in the Catechism we confess that we ask God's name to be holy among us and that this takes place when the Word of God is taught in its truth and purity and we as children of God lead holy lives according to God's Word. God says, be holy, be perfect, as I the Lord your God am holy and perfect. But does he really mean it? Stay tuned for Equipping the Saints with Pastors Clint Poppy and Adam Moline. Welcome once again to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Noah Kirstein. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is episode 37 of Equipping the Saints. And for the last several episodes, we've been dealing with the topic of death, specifically dying a good death or dying well. Uh, How can Christians prepare to die a Christian death. And we've been uh, looking at a lot of different Bible passages. We've parked the car at John chapter 11. We have uh, uh, systematically been working our way through this uh, awesome chapter in God's Word. In our uh, last episode, we looked at verses 17 to 27, verses that are uh, often used as uh, a gospel reading for a funeral service. And so I think that was uh, beneficial on a variety of levels to work through that text. Now we want to continue, and these uh, verses may not be quite as familiar as the verses that we've covered before. And we're going we're gonna to look at the chunk, John 11, 28 to 37. That's our goal, at least, as we get started here. Uh, Pastor, any uh, any comments before we dig into this chapter of God's Word? Just, I guess I'd encourage people to go back and listen uh, to the episodes as we get to here so it's not jumping in the middle. Uh, in this, we see uh, a lot of great things where we uh, are confess our belief in the resurrection and how that changes the way that we live. And uh, even the way we struggle to believe that, um, even when we know better. And so read those, not read, listen to those uh, other episodes, and uh, then you'll be able to hop right in where we are. KNNA Theological Programming uh, on your favorite podcast provider. Uh, We began our topic of dying well with episode 30. And we began our look at John 11 in episode 34. This is episode 37. Vicar, starting at verse 28, take it away. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, 
she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Okay, we have uh, an interesting and uh, very challenging uh, section of Scripture, challenging in the fact that uh, uh, it's very common for us to question God's will. We come to church and we sing the hymn, What God Ordains is Always Good, and then uh, we realize just how difficult it is in our hearts and in our minds to uh, accept the good and gracious will of God when it doesn't seem so very good and gracious to us. And so uh, we've got some uh, very earthy things here. We've got some, um, some very deep insight into the person uh, the person and work of Jesus, of course, but especially the person of Jesus. Uh, when we start out here in verse 28, when she had said this, what is that referring to, Pastor? What, what happened in our uh, previous segment? Well, uh, Martha, right before this, had heard the words from the lips of Christ himself that uh, he is the resurrection and the life, and everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. And then he asked her, do you believe this? And she is uh, replying in faith, uh, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And it's at, that, at those words, at that confession of faith, then the next events take place. And that is a, a bold confession of faith that we have from Martha, uh, following a bold proclamation of the gospel where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He, uh, he tells us that uh, we have nothing to fear with regard to death because he has come to conquer sin death and the grave so she went and got her sister mary called to her sister mary saying in private the teacher is here and calling for you uh, i don't know if i've ever thought about that before pastor but uh, do you think there's any significance to the fact that she went and talked to her sister in private I think so. I um, I think it's a very practical thing. So you got to remember the way this works. There'd be all these people there, um, kind of like the funeral after party, maybe would be the way to say it. And that would happen for several days where people are coming and consoling the family uh, at their time of loss. Um, and so you see people there. Mary probably practically takes her sister aside just to talk to her. Um, so that it's not a public thing, you know, that so-and-so's here. It's just so that Mary has the opportunity to go and talk to Jesus. I wonder if at this time uh, she's hoping that Mary will come out and talk to Jesus, and she doesn't want the whole crowd to follow. Right. Uh, that, that practical kind of aspect. I think uh, even pre perhaps more important than the saying it in private part is what she says, the teacher is here and calling for you. I think... Um, what an amazing thing for us to confess as Christians, you know. Uh, really, that's what happens in the divine service is Jesus is here and he's calling to you uh, through his word, uh, through the gifts of his sacraments. Uh, Jesus is here and uh, 
Um, he wants you to be his disciple. And it's not a thing where, okay, so now you got to decide to follow him or whatever. Uh, that obviously happens here for Mary, and it does happen for us, but it is the call of God that uh, begins all of this work. It's, uh, it's also uh, interesting to note, too, that we have the, uh, the two sisters acting in complete opposite of one of the other dealings that we have where where Martha is so concerned with the uh, the details of the meal and all the preparations and Mary is the one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to Jesus Martha's upset uh, she feels like she's getting dumped on because she's got to do all the work and uh, Jesus says uh, Mary has chosen the better thing and it appears that uh, Martha got it Martha got it. Uh, you know, she went out. She sought out Jesus. She wanted to hear what Jesus had to say at this uh, extremely crucial point in uh, in her life, uh, grieving the uh, the loss and the death of her brother. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Any shock there? Uh, Pastor, with regard to verse twenty nine that uh, Mary responded in this way. No, it's the same uh, that happened with Martha. When she heard, uh, she got up and went out to see Jesus as well. Um, and uh, Mary remained seated in the house. And now, uh, because that word has come, he's calling for you. Now she's responding in the same way. Vicar, in verse 30, we get some um, isagogical details with regard to where this uh, next conversation is going to take place. What's going on in verse 30? Well, Jesus had not fully come into the village of Bethany yet. He was still on the outskirts of the town where he first encountered Martha. Um, is that what you were going for? That's exactly what I'm going for. So um, this whole thing takes place um, outside the village, almost as if Martha was watching and waiting for Jesus to show up. Uh you think that's you think that's possible, Pastor? I think I think, um, I think I'm Martha prodigal son kind of picture, where you know the the father is looking for the prodigal son, waiting for the prodigal son to come, and here we have Mary and Martha who are really ticked off that Jesus didn't come when their brother was sick, and uh, I almost get like that same kind of a picture that Martha had been looking and longing for Jesus to finally show up. He did. He's still not in the village. Go get Mary, and she's going to come out, and they're still not in the village. I, th I think that um, that's a nice idea, and, and we definitely have those sorts of things in Scripture. I think in this particular text, that's probably reading a little bit too much into it, because you got to remember, Jesus is down by the Dead Sea, and so he's coming up from that particular area. Martha hears herself that Jesus is coming, and that's why she ran out, and now she tells Mary, and Mary runs out. And uh, I, I think that is maybe it, but I, I don't think that that's clearly here in the text. I think what is important isagogically for this particular location is is that uh, it is two miles outside of the, the city walls of Jerusalem, and uh, it would be the direction where the scapegoat and things like that were released out into the wilderness. It is right over the, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You can go and visit it today. There's a beautiful church. In fact, the picture that is my uh, sermon podcast picture is from the inside of that particular church. Um, and so you could take a look at that, uh, the Church of Lazarus. 
There is the traditional site of Lazarus's tomb that's right next to it. And I think there again, here's why they're going outside the village is because uh, by Jewish tradition, you could not bury someone within the city walls. That would be against the rules. Uh, and so all the tombs are located outside of the village. And so that's the reason that there is this going outside the village. So Jesus is coming up from the Dead Sea. He's headed towards Jerusalem. As we know, that's where he'll be the week following to be arrested and uh, crucified. Um, and uh, they're outside the walls because that's where the tomb would be. And, uh, and so that's what's going on. Okay. And I think, you know, you bring us rightly back to the text. And uh, earlier on in John 11, uh, Martha heard that Jesus was coming. Uh, so we have nothing in the text that indicates that she was, you know, standing by the city gates and watching for him or anything. Um, kind of a nice little sentimental notion, but we need to be careful that we don't add a sentimental notion into the clear word of Scripture. So thank you for that. Uh, Vicar, one more time then, what happens in verse, uh, uh, let's see here, um, verse 31, that's where I want to go. Uh, what happens with regard to Mary and who also goes with Mary? So Mary hears from Martha that Jesus is calling for her, and she gets up quickly to go out. And the other Jews who were there weeping at the house see this and follow her because they think that she is going to the tomb in order to weep. So okay. now Mary and the whole crowd are going out to Jesus. Okay, so you got Mary uh, at the beckoning of Jesus through Martha, and you got the whole crowd following her. And when we come back from our break, I want to uh, pick your brain, Pastor, with regard to uh, Jewish mourning customs and how these things are similar and uh, if there's anything that we can learn with regard to how we mourn and how we grieve and how we comfort someone in their loss. This is Equipping the Saints. We'll be right back. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Kirstein. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship every Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday school and adult Bible study for all ages in between. Wednesday evening worship, 630 year round. Come join us and hear God's word and be refreshed with the gifts of God. We are working our way through John chapter 11 in this uh, episode 37. We are going to tackle verses 28 through 37. And uh, we just left off at verse 30, if my notes are correct here. And uh, let's see here. The little tiny print. I need bigger print on my Bible. I apologize for that. I guess we're in verse 31, Pastor. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. 
supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, this is, uh, in some respects, kind of a throw, throwaway line. We're just talking about how uh, Mary got from one place to another place, and uh, we're going to see the conversation that they have on. But uh, I do want to. I want to spend a little time on this verse. Before we went to break, I said, uh, you know, we're talking about dying well. We're talking about dying a Christian death, and one of the aspects of being a Christian is knowing how to respond to the topic of death. And we've got a couple of things going on here in verse 31. Uh, the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Jewish funeral practice uh, would have gotten to this point where you get uh, the people in her house consoling her? This is four days after Lazarus died. He's already been buried. He's in the tomb. And maybe equate that to how Christians can console grieving people today. Yeah. Um, well, the ancient uh, Jewish practices uh, maybe sound a little bit foreign to us, but uh, the person would die and they would uh, bury them as quickly as possible. They'd get them in the tomb ASAP. And there would also be, uh, as a part of this, there would be a group of people around that you, sometimes they're even paid mourners if you wanted to... Uh, um, show your status in society. You might have people paid to weep and mourn so that people knew somebody important died. But you do have friends and family and people who actually knew the person who mourned like we do today. And uh, we can't think of things as being just a quick one and done thing like we do today. So today, okay, we come to the church this day, we have the funeral, we put the body in the ground, and it, we kind of leave the impression with people that that's the time that you have to mourn and after that you're on your own. That wasn't the way it was in the ancient world. The mourning and the weeping would take place over a number of days. There would even be uh, sackcloth and ashes. There would be um, tearing of garments. Uh, sometimes um, we have ancient accounts of even uh, women who uh, uh, beat their breasts and uh, publicly in, in the sign of outward uh, sorrow and mourning at the loss of a loved one. And so these are the kind of things that take place over a number of days even. Uh, I would say even to a certain extent for a year because the burial practice involved putting the body into a tomb, a cave, and then on the year anniversary of their death, collecting the bones and placing those into an ossuary uh, to set in a different location in the tomb so you could reuse the tomb. We see that uh, detail in the death of Christ as well, where they lay him in a tomb that had not been used. And that sounds really weird to us, uh, at least here in the Midwest. I suppose maybe it's more common in places like New Orleans where you rent the tomb for a number of years. Um, but that's the kind of idea. And so for us, how does that impact how we ought to interact with people? Let, let me let me back up before okay. you get into that. Uh, I think if people would act that way today, you know, uh, public mourning, mourning for days or weeks or months after the loss of a loved one, I think uh, uh, people would uh, think that there was something odd or weird going on, uh, maybe that there was some mental disorder going on, uh, go to the psych ward, um, you know, we're, we're supposed to just get over it, and uh, you cannot just get over your grief. And while 
we may hide it and pretend that it's one and done and you're over as soon as the uh, funeral meal is done, then all the grieving is over. But we know differently. We do. We know that when we, when we lose a loved one, and uh, if you haven't experienced this yet, you will, folks. Uh, you know that this, this pain, this hurt, this emptiness, this grieving is real. And it goes on for a long period of time. It is not a display of a lack of faith. That's what some people would read it as. It is not a display of some sort of weakness or mental illness. This is a part of who we are. We're going to see this in the humanity of Jesus coming up here in a little bit. So we... We almost, I mean, in, in the same way that with the, with the dead body, you know, we put makeup on it and get the hair fixed and dress it up in the finest of clothes, um, almost giving the impression that death isn't that big of a deal or it's not that bad. We can pretty it up. We pretend that grieving is no big deal. Am I, am, am, am I blowing smoke here or have you experienced this? No, I think we, we do. We, we uh, put on airs. We act like uh, there's nothing wrong or that we're strong, you know, um, inside ourselves so we can handle these things. And uh, I think that oftentimes is covering up the reality that the people are feeling and dealing with and uh, not being honest. I think the ancient world was much more honest about it. They took it much more seriously and understood it perhaps better uh, and how to deal with things better and maybe we need to go back to that in some ways to let people mourn and to give them um, time to mourn to not just um, push them into smiling and being happy again but actually acknowledging the loss that death brings about because acknowledging that loss actually allows us to confess our faith a little bit clearer to say that death is not good it's not natural, it's not the way it should be, and that it's our sin that brought it about. And then to look for the answer, which is what uh, you know Mary and Martha both do. They go to see Jesus, they go to God, and uh, they know that God will put it right in the end and undo the hurt and pain and sorrow that they feel. The, uh, the Jews went to Mary and Martha's house. We don't do that very often today. Maybe you would with a close relative or a next-door neighbor. Christians consoling others in their grief, going to the house. Why do you think it is that people are, are so hesitant today to actually do that? Oh, we'll send a card, maybe write out a check, uh, might in extreme circumstances even bring by some food and then drop it off the door and then run away. What do, what do you think about actually having a face-to-face -face conversation in someone's house with someone who is grieving? Well, I'll tell you my honest opinion. And it might probably is not very popular. Uh, we have done a really good job in our society of insulating ourselves from death, and we don't like it. We don't want to think about it. And even going into a house where perhaps someone has died or a loved one is mourning someone who's died makes us feel uncomfortable because it makes us think about death and see it and deal with uh, the ramifications of it. Um, and that's really too bad. I, I think we need to consider, too, here, we, we didn't really talk about it, but um, Mary and Martha knew Lazarus was sick and was dying, and that's when they called Jesus the first time, right? 
Um, and uh, so you got to imagine how long this process is taking place. Uh, yes, Jesus waited four days until he comes to see the tomb, um, but they sent messengers to go and find Jesus, and that might have taken some time to tell him that Lazarus is sick and that he needed to come. And so while all this is happening, Lazarus is probably laying in their house. It's probably small, probably just a couple rooms at the most. Mary and Martha are taking care of him, dealing with him, watching him suffer, watching his body grow cold. Uh, perhaps he's you know, feeling pain. Perhaps he's got some sort of sickness. Uh, we don't know. He's, he's not able to get up and go to the bathroom, so they're cleaning that up. They're doing all these things, taking care of him in their own house. And it's into that house where all these things have just been done that these mourners come to support and care for and help them uh, in their time of sorrow and sadness. And um, we sweep all of that stuff under the rug. We hire someone to come and take care of them or we put them into a hospice facility where someone else will take care of them. We put them into a coma so we don't watch them suffer and struggle. We don't even think about the death part at all. Uh, and uh, I think maybe that's why we don't go into people's houses then, too. I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. You brought that up about uh, sending for Jesus, and I just want to highlight the fact. Uh, were Mary and Martha wrong in calling for their pastor to come and visit? No. The, you should call your pastor. Your okay. Past, before. Yeah, before the, the funeral. Before the funeral. <laughs> you, you should call them. When the person starts to get sick, you should call them when the person is uh, taking a turn for the worst. You should call them before hospice puts them into a coma with morphine. You should call them when they have the opportunity to hear the word, and you should call them when the person dies. And uh, even if you get a questionable or bad diagnosis from the doctor, uh, that's a good time to call the pastor, too to help you in the waiting or in the processing of this. Uh, so we got a lot of things going on here. Uh, Pastor, uh, they follow her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. What about that? Christians going to the graveside to weep for or over their loved one. Well, good, good, bad, or indifferent. I think it's good. I think you should go do that. I think that we have, that we could have a whole long discussion about this too. There are some reasonable boundaries that uh, go beyond Christian weeping and mourning at the graveside. We we do it to begin with at the end of the service, right? So we go out and we commit the body to the ground. We have a service for that where we say this body is going to rest here until the day of the resurrection of all flesh. Uh, it's fine and good for the family to go out and remember the person. Uh, I'd say it's probably even acceptable and fine to put flowers on the grave um, as a kind of a memorial towards them, so long as we understand it the right way. And there's where the line is. Uh, covering the grave with um, teddy bears or football jerseys or uh, beer bottles is, is a bit too far. Uh, it, it more goes towards paganism, to be completely frank about it. I know people hurt, and I know it's a way of, way of coping with the loss, but when you're actually giving things to the dead person uh, rather than as just a memorial to them, there's a line that you cross, and it's too far. Um, so going out, missing them, weeping, crying, that's acceptable. That's what they're doing here in the text, or at least that's what they think that's going on. But uh, votive offerings or even um, talking 
Uh, we have to fine line there, talking to the person as if they're there rather than with God. Um, now you can go out and you could talk to God there, or it's it's a very fine line, and you have to understand the motivations behind it all. Uh, showing reverence for the body, uh, even with a memorial like flowers and things like that, that's good. Uh, turning things into a tabernacle or a shrine where we think it's some kind of a portal to God, uh, that's going way too far. And uh, we'll have more to say about that in future episodes. So uh, send us your questions. This is Equipping the Saints. We need to take a short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Kirstein. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is episode 37. We're talking on the uh, broader topic of dying well or dying a Christian death. We're working our way through John chapter 11 and a wonderful and amazing chapter of scripture for us. This episode, we're looking at verses 28 to 37. Uh, We spent our last segment, uh, the entire segment on verse 31 and talking about grieving and uh, healthy ways to grieve, Christian ways to grieve and ways that uh, maybe kind of um, go too far and uh, really are incorporating uh, aspects of uh, foreign religion or paganism or whatever. Uh, Pastor, during the break, I made the comment that uh, it is it is natural for people to grieve. Uh, death is not natural. And so when death or anything reminding us of death comes into our life, um, we grieve. And if we don't grieve in a healthy way, because we are geared or wired to grieve, we will more than likely grieve in an unhealthy way. You think that's a fair statement? I think so. And I think that's where, um, so we started this whole conversation this down this path, talking about the family or the people that were in the house with the family. And I think that's where we as Christians, uh, could learn to be there with people who are mourning and to help them grieve in a healthy way. And we have this stigma about us that we don't know how to do it. We don't know what to say. Um, but just being there, uh, listening, and even driving people back just purely to the Word of God uh, is all we really need to do to be there with them in that regard. And uh, that will allow us then to learn how to grieve healthily. And so if someone's there to support us when we're grieving, then we'll maybe have the strength and the knowledge to go when someone else is grieving to their house and help them grieve in a Christian way. And um, because we've insulated ourselves so much from death, we don't know how to do this anymore as a society. And uh, that's where we need to return to our Christian faith. Well said, Pastor. Well said. Vicar, um, you want to read 32 to 37 get those words fresh in our brain now when mary came to where jesus was and saw him she fell at his feet saying to him 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Pastor, verse 32. Uh, So Mary uh, goes to where Jesus is at. She fell at his feet. Um, Did she, she collapsing from grief? Uh, is this a uh, is this a posture of worship? Is she acknowledging him as God? What's going on here? Well, um, the word here in the Greek is pipto, uh, is the verb, and it, it just is this idea of falling. There'd be maybe a few other words that would indicate perhaps worship, and they're not here. Does she believe who he is? I think so, because she does call him Lord. Is this an act of worship? I I wouldn't go quite that far because the context, the other words aren't really there to indicate that. I'd say this is kind of a collapse. She goes out there, she sees Jesus, they're out towards the tomb now outside the city walls, and so um, there's just this overwhelming sorrow that comes upon her, and it is verbalized in those words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Uh, it's the same thing that Jesus heard from the other sister earlier. That's yeah, kind of like deja vu all over again. And uh, so I think it gives you an idea of the way that they're feeling and the hurt that they're feeling, and yet they still call Jesus Lord, which is uh, a key thing in all of this. So is uh, is she accurate uh, when uh, she says the same thing that Martha had said earlier, when she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died? <sighs> That's the hope, right? Um, I cannot pretend to read God's mind. Um, and, uh, you know, this is happening, as Jesus has already said, so that the glory of God may be revealed. And um, sometimes we feel that way, right? If God had been there, then my loved one would not have died. I think it's possible Jesus could have healed him, could have stopped the death. He is capable of that, but we can't... Um, claim to know the mind of God in that. You, uh, you, you went exactly where I was hoping you would go because we have this same attitude and feeling and even to the point where sometimes if our loved one gets sick and dies and we think that it's unfair or unjust or whatever our, our motives or reason, we blame God and uh, the way we take it out on God is we sever our relationship with God. We quit coming to church. We uh, have nothing to do with God. I have this uh, in, my, in my own family with uh, uh, relatives that have uh, long since passed away, but tragedy strikes, and uh, the way they handle this tragedy is, is to blame God. I think this is real. I think this is normal. I think this is natural, but the key is where do you go from here? Jesus, when he's dealing with Martha, he speaks the word of comfort. He speaks the great, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. He, he points her to himself. He points her to the certainty of eternal life. Jesus does something different here with Mary. He doesn't give her words per se. He shares in her grief. 
And uh, a few verses later, he gives her action, concrete action, which is a, a preview of the greatest miracle of all time. Pastor, in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come to her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay, so he sees what's going on. He sees the immense grief that not only Mary and Martha have, but all of the mourners who are there. And uh, the ESV says, deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. I know those are two significant Greek words. Can you unpack those a little bit for us? Yeah, the first one uh, is kind of a weird word. It's not used a ton of times in the scripture. Uh, I think I can find four times where it's used. Um, when I hear in English, deeply moved in spirit, uh, I think of the compassion word, that uh, my word. And this is a different word. This is a different word. This is not that word. This word is uh, embrimaomai. Uh, and it is a word that outside of the scriptures um, is it means a, a stern snort and particularly in this particular format the aorist middle uh, it's what a horse does that kind of a snort um, and even I wonder I, don't, I can't say this for sure if it's did you um, like that vicar I did okay thank you it was more of a pig snort but uh, yeah, we're on the right that, 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 that. Uh, I wonder if it's even a uh, onomatopoeia um, where, uh, you know, a horse goes, Mee! that kind of a, a noise. Uh, it has connotation that goes with it of a very stern sort of snort. And I think what you see here is when it says he's uh, deeply moved in his spirit, his spirit crying out in the pain and the agony that he's seeing in his friends and they're weeping and that he feels himself at death because God does not like death. He is not a fan of death. Um, he, he cries out with that sort of a, a, a snort or a whinny that uh, very sternly that a horse would have. And then the second word, um, that's the first word in his spirit. The second word uh, is, um, it's from the verb tarasso, uh, and it, it literally just means to trouble. And so he's crying out in his spirit with this stern snort, and he's troubled greatly. And so you see both of these things going on, and it's going to lead then to the verses that follow after that uh, when he gets to the tomb and he weeps. Um, and so this is the idea that's going on here. He is feeling as a human the hurt and pain that death brings while at the same time in his divine nature he is god who is able to deal with it and so we see both natures at work here in this particular account and that's i don't know if this is worth saying here or not that's why we're not monophysites or miaphysites uh, either one of those things we do see instances and this is one of them where both natures of christ are visible i'm, I'm glad you went there pastor because this is a classic example of the true humanity of Jesus, where he is feeling human emotions. I mean, Jesus is God. Uh, God does not uh, is not troubled in spirit in these kind in the same way that human beings are. God is troubled um, if we want to use that kind of uh, 
human language uh, to explain attributes of God. God is troubled over the fact that sin is causing this and that this is not a part of his divine plan where everything is to live forever. God's a God of life, not a God of death. And so here, as you, as you beautifully said, we have Jesus, who is true God and true man, all at the same time, exhibiting these feelings and emotions and even like a buck snort. That's what I was thinking of before when you were talking about that. Um, all of these uh, feelings and emotions and actions that have both true God and true man all at the same time happening. And I think it's worth pointing out then that also Jesus is the perfect man. He fulfills God's will perfectly, both passively and actively, and he's still feeling and greatly troubled in his heart and soul at seeing this. And so I think that tells us that mourning is an acceptable thing to do. It's not weak. Even the perfect um, man, Christ himself, weeps and mourns and feels the pain of loss. And so to get back to our earlier conversation, we don't have to hide it. We don't have to bury it down. We don't have to keep it away from people. I think that's part of why a lot of us are dealing with um, mental issues is because we're trying to put on the best face on Facebook, social media, the world, uh, public sphere, instead of actually allowing ourselves to weep as Christ does here. That That is a great point, Pastor. Extremely well said. And uh, we'll unpack that even more with regard to Jesus as the perfect human being when we see what the perfect human being does. Um, in the next couple of verses, because these verses are, um, in some in some ways, very very shocking. Uh, we need to take a break. This is equipping the saints. We're looking at John eleven twenty eight to thirty seven. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to K N N A. LP 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Equipping the Saints, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Kirstein. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are talking about the topic of death, dying well, dying a Christian death, preparing for death. We spent a lot of time in uh, this particular episode, episode 37, talking about uh, grieving and how Christians grieve, and uh, we've got a lot more to say with regard to that. We're looking at verses 28 to 37. We left off at verse 33. Jesus is deeply troubled. He's moved in spirit. We see the, the human nature of Jesus uh, very, very vividly and very clearly. And then in verse 34, uh, Jesus said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Um, 
We've talked quite a bit about uh, you know the burial customs and and the tomb and all this kind of stuff. When Jesus asks, "Where have you laid him?" What does everybody assume Jesus is going to do, Pastor? Well, um, I guess they, you don't know yet, right? They're, they're not assuming a resurrection. They're not. I think. What, they're, what are they assuming Jesus is going to? They're do? assuming the same thing that they were just assuming about um, Mary and Martha—that they're going to go to the tomb and they're going to weep there because that's what you do. Yes, and so I think this is the basic assumption that uh, Jesus—he's moved, uh, he's troubled, uh, even audibly troubled at what's going on. He's a man of compassion. He's showing compassion. And in verse 35, uh, confirmation students joke that uh, that's their favorite memory verse uh, because it is the shortest verse in Scripture. Vicar, what is verse 35 of John 11? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Um, I have uh, I've been to ordinations and installations where pastors have used this verse as a blessing on the new pastor and uh, it's not a joke you know that that jesus is weeping that this guy is going to be a pastor um but uh i I thought it was uh, very clever and very tastefully done the uh person puts his uh, hands on the uh, head of the pastor and voices this blessing Jesus wept and in the same way uh, as pastor be a man of compassion Uh, weep when your people weep rejoice when your people rejoice and know that all weeping is gone in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ I thought it was very well done and very uh, very apropos as well Um, We've been talking about the humanity of Jesus. Jesus wept. Jesus is a man of compassion. Is there more in this verse, Pastor? I I think that that uh, indicates it. We talked about the two natures of Christ and the man and the God uh, and how they are here present and visible. I think something maybe worth, I, I don't know how to say it. So the verse before that where Jesus says, where have you laid him? And they say, Lord, come and see. Um, I think that is indicative again of how we ought to act. We ought to bring Christ into the presence of the people who have died and the people who are mourning. I think it's interesting in John's gospel, uh, the words that are used come and see are the same words that are used in uh, chapter, is it chapter one or chapter two, where Philip and Nathaniel are talking about uh, its evangelism taking place, come and see. And in a sense, that's still the same thing here. Uh, We're bringing Christ into the presence of people as they're mourning and as they're hurting and uh, letting Christ shine forth and letting people see Christ. Uh, And that's really key here as well. Uh, Very good. It speaks against eulogies. Maybe I should take that step and just say it, right? What's the focus of the weeping in the morning? It shouldn't be on the individual or on the person or, you know, they did such a good job raising me, you should buy insurance from me or anything like that. Um, It should always be drawing our focus back to Jesus, and that's really key and central. Well said. Amen. Amen to that. Verse 36, Vicar. um, How do the mourners respond when they see Jesus weeping? 
they see Jesus weeping and say, see how he loved him. And so they're, they're noticing that because Jesus is weeping and he is so moved by the death of his friend Lazarus, that he must have really loved Lazarus. Yeah, and I think, I think that's a, a valid observation. You don't cry over things you don't care about. Um, you know, if uh, people are crying over their favorite sports team losing a game, um, if they don't care about sports, they wouldn't cry about it. And so we, we see just some, some basic kind of common sense with regard to when you see somebody crying, you, you know they really cared a lot about it. Uh, they have no idea the depth and the extent of Christ's love and care at this point, and he's about ready to show up. I think this is a central theme in John's writing again uh, also. Um, you remember John himself uh, calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. At the beginning of this particular account, uh, it is said clearly that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Um, and uh, John writes in his epistles as well that you know, God is love. Um, and uh, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. And I think then this is the theme uh, throughout all of John's writings, and we apply that word then to ourself. Um, I, I'm going to say it this way. When you die, Pastor Poppy, God will be sad that you have died. Um, when I die, God will be sad that I die because he loves us and he doesn't want that for us. But that when it's God feeling that, he has an action that he carries out to undo that, uh, and that's resurrection that will he'll happen on the last day of this world. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up as well, because for humans, uh, generally when we think about love, we are only thinking about an emotion or uh, you know, some sort of romantic notion of love. But the, the love word that permeates the Gospel of John and also the Epistle of John, uh, first Epistle of John, the, the love word there is agape, and that is an action word, that is a sacrificial word, and it is a very, very descriptive of God's great love for us in uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah, this time uh, it is uh, phileo, of course, the, the word brotherly love that's being used here. And I think, you know, uh, however we find the definition of the term, the fact that we need to keep in mind is that God does love us. God doesn't want us to die. He doesn't want us to be in sin. And it's for that reason then that he sends Jesus, which is why then in these instances, we want the focus then to be on Christ. When these people are talking about, see how he loved him, they're talking about Jesus. Their focus is on Jesus again. Um, when they say, come and see where we've laid him, they're bringing Jesus there. And that's how we ought to act in the face of death as well, because it's the love of Jesus shown in his death on the cross and his resurrection uh, that is the only hope we have at those moments. Yes, and Jesus is the perfect, uh, not only agape love, but also phileo love, uh, that brotherly love, Philadelphia kind of love. Vicar, the last verse in the section we're examining today, verse 37, how do did many of the people respond? They see Jesus weeping. Some are saying, oh, look at how he loved him. And then some of the people in verse 37, um, they respond in a kind of a negative way. What's going on there? Well, I, th I think they're slightly confused. I mean, he could have 
Jesus could have prevented all of this weeping and mourning if he had only been here to heal Lazarus, like he healed the blind man from blindness. He could have prevented this whole thing, and now Jesus is here weeping. Didn't he make this bed? I think that's that's sort of where they're going. Yeah, I think, I think so too. And uh, maybe they're questioning whether Jesus really does have the power to do anything. Uh, maybe this was too severe an illness for him. Uh, you know, he healed others. Uh, you know, why can't he uh, heal his best friend? I think of the people that mocked Jesus on the cross. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? And so we have this same, uh, same kind of doubt and questioning with regard to the identity of Jesus. Pastor? And it's interesting that they say, if this man could open the eyes of the man born blind, why couldn't he heal this one? Because it drives you then back to John chapter 9, where that entire account is given as well. He says to the man, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, and he does. And then there is the investigation that takes place. Did this really happen or did it not? Uh, They investigate, they ask the man who was born blind, you know, who did this to you? How did this happen? And they go through the court system and find out that it did actually happen. It's verifiable. And they even interview family members. It's verifiable. It really, truly happened. And so if that happened and it's verifiable, then it begs the question, what's going on here? And this is all leading up to the reason that they're going to try and kill Jesus. In fact, John's very clear they wanted to kill Lazarus as well uh, because these things are verifiable and they do indicate something about who Jesus is and uh, it's unavoidable if you can verify these actions. The identity of Jesus is, uh, is really the question at hand. And that last uh, kind of statement about, yeah, you know, uh, why, why didn't Jesus do this? Why didn't Jesus do that? Couldn't he have done that? Um, we're talking about the identity of Jesus. Who do you say that he is? Earlier in our text, uh, when Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of the life, to uh, uh, Martha, uh, he says, do you believe this? And with regard to the identity of Jesus, in our, uh, in our next section, in our uh, next episode, when we, when we look at what Jesus does when he gets to the grave, there's going to be no doubt with regard to the identity of Jesus. You think healing a man born blind uh, was a great miracle? Uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because we know where this is going. John chapter 11 is a great chapter in Scripture that celebrates God's victory over sin, death, and the grave. Gives us a preview of Christ's own resurrection because Lazarus is dead. But folks, he's not going to stay dead. That's where we're going to go when we come back. Pastor, um, final comments on this particular section and what it says to a Christian who maybe has some of these same questions and doubts as Mary and then Martha and now the crowd. I think this particular section today would indicate to us that we need to be in the presence of Christ as we deal with death and loss and mourning and weeping. That 
happens as fellow Christians come with God's word in their lips. Uh, as we mourn, it comes as we participate in uh, the divine service, hearing the word, uh, singing the liturgy, uh, receiving the sacraments. Um, these are all really important so that as we deal with death and the pain that it brings, our eyes are kept focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. Our hope is in the concrete life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, victorious over the grave for you, for me, for the life of the world. This has been episode 37 of Equipping the Saints, John 11, 28 to 37. We'll be back again soon. God's richest blessings in Christ. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.